You are listening to Standing Firm, a ministry of Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity, dedicated to standing firm for the ancient faith and against the ancient foe until Christ is all in all. Standing Firm is earnestly contending for the faith as revealed through the Holy Scriptures and explained in the historical church creeds and Reformed confessions. This program is directed by Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity to fulfill Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 16.13 to be on guard, to stand firm in the faith, to be courageous, and to be strong. For more information, visit us online at reformedholytrinity.org. Again, that is reformedholytrinity.org. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us here on Standing Firm as we unashamedly proclaim the whole counsel of God to a world blinded by sin. I am your host, James Brown, Jr., and I am the pastor at Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity in Morgan County, Indiana. Today we have another interesting program as we review a video that has been posted on the internet of Pastor Tim Keller commenting on the statement, of of social justice and the gospel. Now, there has been a lot of conversation about the statement, but unfortunately, most of the conversation is off in la-la land. And we live in a day when it is not trendy to faithfully stand for Christ and his word. We are too focused upon what the culture thinks and the consequences of standing firm in our society. But we are committed here at Standing Firm and Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity that we are going to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, even if that means suffering, tribulation, or persecution. Paul's commission to Timothy, and by extension to all ministers of the gospel in 2 Timothy 4.2, is to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. That is what we will endeavor to do. What we're going to do first here on today's program is listen to the whole clip in order to understand the context and so that the context can remain intact. And then we will go back and review the specific comments by Keller. Now, this was recorded from a cell phone, and so the audio quality is not the greatest, uh, but we believe that you will be able to hear and to understand. So here is Pastor Tim Keller's comments concerning the statement on social justice and the gospel. There's a thing called speech act theory. And speech act theory, which is, is I think, very helpful, says... You can't just analyze words by what they say. You also have to analyze words by what they do. Mm-hmm. So uh, they've got they've got technical terms for it. They talk about, uh, uh, in other words, you you could say, um, uh, you know, oh, I, I you know I love the way you look, and that may be perfectly true, but it depends on what you're trying to do. If under certain circumstances, that could be a, a rather um, it could be a, that could be a kind of coercive statement. So in other words, there's what it says, is it true, and then what is it trying to do? So when I go through there, if you go really, really strictly, I think just about anybody would take about 80% of it. You say, yep, 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 yep. And then there's even some places if you really push, and you say, I kind of see why they would say that. It depends on how they might define church and things like that. 
But in the end, what, what concerns me most about it is not so much what it's saying as what it's trying to do. Um, and what I fear is, and, and I think they may be responding to you know, some sins on the other side, is uh, at this point I feel that the Christian church is being, because our, our country is so polarized politically, that increasingly the church is becoming an extension of the various political parties. So I, this is, I've said this before and I say it again, uh, you know, if, if you talk about the evangelical church, for example, there's now becoming a red evangelicalism and a blue evangelicalism. It's almost like uh, there are churches that are sort of lining up and become more extensions of a particular political party than they are really looking at what the Word of God says. Because uh, I actually do think that if you really take a look at, uh, there's a lot of things the Bible says about sex and gender that really come out pretty sounding politically today, conservative. And a lot of things the Bible says about race and justice and the poor that today come out sounding extremely liberal. And therefore, the, ch the church has to, I, I admit, at the very end of my talk, I try to say, the churches cannot identify so completely with one party. I think that's what that this thing ends up to. It's, it's not so much what it says, it's what it does. It's trying to marginalize people who are talking about race and justice. It's trying to say, you're really not biblical. Uh, so it's, it, and, and it's not fair in that sense. So that's the reason why it, when somebody, if somebody starts to go down it with me and say, would you agree with this, would you agree with this? I would say, you're looking at the level of what it says and not at the level of what it's doing. And I do think what it's trying to do is it's really trying to say, don't make this emphasis. Don't worry about the poor. Don't care about the injustice. It's not really that important. That's what it's saying. Uh, even if even if I can agree with most of it, it's, I don't I don't like it. So that's that's what I mean. It's what it's doing that I don't like. Okay, there you have the whole context, and now let's look at his comments in more detail as we break it up for the purpose of our comments. So we're going to go back through and play little clips uh, from the overall whole context of the video. So here's clip number one. There's a thing called speech act theory. And speech act theory, which is, a, which is I think very helpful, says you can't just analyze words by what they say. You also have to analyze words by what they do. So we have to analyze words not only by what they say, but what they do based upon some sort of speech act theory. Now, I'm, I'm really unsure what Keller is trying to communicate by his words, so I guess we should be attempting to analyze what his words do according to the same speech act theory, which means we need to understand what the speech act theory actually is. Now, in our next clip, Keller will give us an illustration, but before we hear his attempted definition of what the speech act theory looks like, Let's look at the sources of this theory. Now, we're going to be relying upon Richard Norquist, who was a professor of English and rhetoric at Armstrong State University for 35 years, and he has also became somewhat of an authority on this subject. He received his Ph.D. from New York State University, and he wrote, Speech Act Theory is a subfield of pragmatics. Yeah, that means we're going to have to do a lot more clarifying because the first question that we should then ask is, what is pragmatics? 
In another article, he wrote, Pragmatics is a branch of linguistics concerned with the use of language in social contexts and the ways in which people produce and comprehend meanings through language. In other words, pragmatics refers to the way people use language in social situations and the way that language is interpreted, end of quote. So what we have to do, according to Nordquist, is interpret signs, not physical signs, but the subtle movements, gesture, gestures, tone of voice, and body language that often accompanies speech. Speech act theory is a subset of this interpretation of the words of the speaker by the hearer based upon movements, gestures, tone of voice, and body language that accompanies the actual words. Now, if we are talking about a specific context of the words that corresponds to these things, we might think that there is some connection. But the more we investigate, the more convoluted it becomes. Nordquist continues, and this is a rather lengthy quote, to determine which way a speech act is to be interpreted, one must first define the type of act being performed. Locutionary acts are the mere act of producing some linguistic sounds or marks with a certain meaning and reference. So this is merely an umbrella term, as illocutionary and perlocutionary acts can occur simultaneously when locution of a statement happens. Illocutionary acts then carry a directive for the audience. It might be a promise, an order, an apology, or an expression of thanks or merely an answer to a question, to inform the other person in the conversation. These express a certain attitude and can carry with their statements a certain illocutionary force which can be broken into families. Perlocutionary acts, on the other hand, bring about a consequence to the audience. They have an effect on the hearer in feelings, thoughts, or actions, for example, changing someone's mind. Unlike illocutionary acts, perlocutionary acts can project a sense of fear into the audience. End of quote. So basically, illocutionary acts relate more around the speaker and perlocutionary acts around the listener. In the illocutionary acts, we can see how the pragmatics of the speaker can carry a directive for the audience. It really becomes problematic, though, when the words of the speaker are to be interpreted as a consequence to the audience that is determined and based upon their feelings, thoughts, or even actions. Now, whether or not the developers of this theory ever anticipated these things were to be used upon text-only situations or not, it becomes even more problematic when you understand that whether you are talking about illocutionary or perlocutionary acts, the determining factor for interpretation is the hearer. Now, this may not have been the intention of the developers of this theory, but when you have people who take one course, read one article, or watch one YouTube video thinking they are experts on any particular subject, 
you're going to get some weird applications, especially in this postmodern deconstruction era that we live in, which may be part of the whole theory to begin with. In order to reinterpret what is said, not based upon the textual based context and meaning of words, but upon the feelings of those who hear them. So there's a little background on this theory that Tim Keller is attempting to utilize in his analysis of the statement on social justice and the gospel. So let's move on to clip number two. So uh, they've, got, they've got technical terms for it. They talk about, uh, uh, in other words, you, you could say, um, uh, you, know, oh, I, I, you know, I love the way you look. And that may be perfectly true, but it depends on what you're trying to do. If, in, under certain circumstances, that could be a, a rather, um, it could be a, that could be a kind of coercive statement. So in other words, there's what it says, is it true, and then what is it trying to do? In the example that Keller uses here, he is talking about the overriding context of a particular statement, which is not what the developers of this speech act theory seem to have in mind. Now, this is all kind of fuzzy, which is the way this postmodern society likes it. But if you can blur any particular topic, issue, or statement, you can then interject your own feelings, impressions, and context, which is what's going on and is the overriding premise throughout our society. The problem with Keller's example is that there is a context surrounding the words, I love the way you look. If these words are being stated in the context of a dimly lit booth in a dimly lit corner of a pickup bar by a man into the ear of a woman, there is a specific contextual meaning that is different than a man saying these exact same words to his insecure pregnant wife. These words may end up in romantic and or intimate expressions, but one has a statement of infidelity and the other fidelity. But in Keller's example and understanding of it, it turns into some weird postmodern Me Too possibility of coercion, which could be true if a man says these words as he attempts to rape a woman. But in the context of our society, I do not think that he means what we mean. In the postmodern construct, just the words themselves from a man to a woman in any context could be a coercive act. Keller is throwing the postmodern crowd a bone here in his explanation that is leading up to a very strange view of the statement on social justice and the gospel based upon a standard of analyzing words based upon whether, not based upon whether or not they are true, and, but what the words are intended to do. And so that brings us to clip number three. So when I go through there, if you go really, really strictly, I think just about anybody would take about 80% of it. You say, yep, 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 yep. Okay, now don't lose your train of thought here. Keller is stating that one can easily go through the statement without any close examination or careful thought and immediately recognize that 80% of the statement is true. Now, in my reading of the statement, I think that 
is a rather low estimate, but I'm willing to start off with 80% in order for the various groups to begin a conversation about the purpose, content, and application of the statement. So now let's review clip number four. And then there's even some places you really push and you say, I can't see why they would say that. It depends on how they might define church and things like that. Now Keller is increasing the accuracy and agreement with the statement above the initial 80% by giving the authors the benefit of the doubt in their language. This is, of course, what we should always do with our brethren, by the way. We are to esteem each other more highly than ourselves and not scrutinize and nitpick over small things. Nor are we to interpret each other's words where there is not full clarity. So what we should do is ask for clarification. And when we receive clarification from our brethren, to accept it and not attempt to interpret it based upon a twitch in their eye or our own impressions of what we think that they mean. Let the words of the document and the clarifying statements stand on their own without imposing motivations and meanings that have not been declared. Now, I have never one time read through this statement and wondered what did they mean by the use of the word church. Since the authors of this statement are orthodox and have a history in relation to the church, I understand their statements to be based upon the context of their teachings and history that they have used the word in an orthodox Protestant meaning. Again, to me this is weird. I do not know of any other way to describe it, but this is not the normal way we analyze a statement coming from our brethren. Now, I understand that if the authors were from an emergent church background, where doctrine is extremely, where doctrine is very pliable, where you would question how they are using the word church, but there is a context, not only to the document, but also with the authors. So when I saw the names of Dr. John MacArthur, Dr. Vody Bauckham, Dr. James White, Vesta Sproul, and, and many others, I did not assume some kind of conspiracy over established doctrinal terms. Now, I realize that Keller may not be familiar with all the top-tier signers, but to labor over common terms and views held by those who are in agreement with historical Protestant teaching seems to me to be grasping at straws in order to build some kind of a straw man in order to appease the cultural trends. But he does say, at least basically and by inference, that if he gave them the benefit of the doubt in their use of the term church, then he could agree with more than the original 80%. Now, I don't know where in his mind that brings us to, whether we are now at 85%, 95%, or even higher. But we should be able to think by giving the benefit of the doubt that we are at least somewhere in the 90% range, or maybe even actually more, 
because let's listen to clip number five. But in the end, what, what concerns me most about it is not so much what it's saying and what it's trying to do. Now, is this an admission that there really is no problem with the language of the statement? Notice it's not what it says, but what it is trying to do. Let's listen once again. But in the end, what, what concerns me most about it is not so much what it's saying as what it's trying to do. My goodness, I feel like I am in the twilight zone, which is about every day anymore. I mean, with all the controversies that are going on and all the craziness throughout our society, I feel like I'm perpetually in the twilight zone. And it's getting really ridiculous. Keller is stating he has nothing to offer against the wording of the document. But in order to remain in the good graces of this postmodern culture, he has to invent motives, actions, presuppositions, assumptions. And by the way, if you assume it makes an ass out of whom? And for anyone that might be offended in this postmodern culture, I'm talking about the animal. Like, you know, in the reference in the uh, King James um, version of the Bible, talking about a donkey. So, here we are, rejecting a biblically correct, theologically correct, and historically correct statement that is defining certain terms, categories, issues in an orthodox view based upon some speech act theory that Keller may not even understand what I admit I don't understand, and I would submit that probably no one really understands, because in this postmodern construct, there really is no meaning to anything, because it is subject, due to its reading into the actual words, context, and ex explanations. This, my friends, is lunacy. Now, this next clip is longer than any of the clips so far, so please bear with it. And what I fear is, and, and I think they may be responding to you know, some sins on the other side, is uh, at this point I feel that the Christian church is being, because our, our country is so polarized politically, that increasingly the church is becoming an extension of the various political parties. So I, this is, I've said this before, I may say it again. Uh, you know, if, if you talk about the evangelical church, for example, there's now becoming a red evangelicalism and a blue evangelicalism. It's almost like uh, there are churches that are sort of lining up and become more extensions of a particular political party than they are really looking at what the Word of God says. Because uh, I actually do think that if you really take a look at uh, there's a lot of things the Bible says about sex and gender that really come out pretty sounding politically today conservative. And a lot of things the Bible says about race and justice and the poor that today come out sounding extremely liberal. And therefore the, ch the church has to, I, I admit, at the very end of my talk I try to say, the churches cannot identify so completely with one party. And I think that's what that this thing ends up to. It's, it's not so much what it says, it's what it does. It's trying to marginalize people who are talking about race and justice. It's trying to say you're really not biblical. Uh, so it's, it, and, and it's not fair in that sense. So that's the reason why it, when somebody, if somebody starts to go down it with me 
and say, would you agree with this, would you agree with this? I would say, you're looking at the level of what it says and not at the level of what it's doing. And I do think what it's trying to do is it's really trying to say, don't make this emphasis. Don't worry about the poor. Don't care about the injustice. It's not really that important. That's what it's saying. Uh, even if even if I can agree with most of it, it's, I don't I don't like it. So that's that's what I mean. It's what it's doing that I don't like. Sins on the other side. What side? Now, is he talking about the other side in reference to social justice, egalitarianism, the gay Christian movement, or the other topics that are um, defined in this statement? What side is he talking about? Now, it cannot be a side that is based on race or ethnicity. For one, people of all different physical classifications are falling on every side of this, this issue. It's not a black versus white issue or a red and yellow for that matter. Plus, the statement is very clear on the subject of race, ethnicity, racism, white supremacy, the diversity within one church, and so on. Now, there's no reason for misunderstanding on these points. In chapter 12 of the statement, it is very clear. And it states, we affirm that God made all people from one man. Though people often can be distinguished by different ethnicities and nationalities, they are ontological equals before God in both creation and redemption. Race is not a biblical category, but rather a social construct that often has been used to classify groups of people in terms of inferiority and superiority. All that is good, honest, just, and beautiful in various ethnic backgrounds and experiences can be celebrated as the fruit of God's grace. All sinful actions and their results, including evils, perpetrated between and upon ethnic groups by others are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. We deny that Christians should segregate themselves into racial groups or regard racial identity above or even equal to their identity in Christ. We deny that any divisions between people groups from an unstated attitude of superiority to an overt spirit of resentment have any legitimate place in the fellowship of the redeemed. We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. End of quote. So, by sins of the other side, is he talking about the social justice issue, the marriage issue, the egalitarian issue, or what? This ambiguity is one of the reasons the statement was drafted, so that we might begin to clarify these things. But instead of joining in a conversation for clarity, Keller is pushing us back into the realms before the statement, when the conversation was so muddled, no one could have a legitimate conversation. What Keller is effectively doing here is putting himself in the middle. He doesn't appear to want to come down on either side. He doesn't want to come down on the unorthodox side. doesn't want to come down on the orthodox side. 
And so, that is part of the clarity that this statement is seeking. Who really wants to tackle these issues from a biblical and orthodox standard? But the biblical and doctrinal statements of Christianity is where we must begin if we are going to have any type of a conversation that will lead us to any ability for application. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Is that not what we are seeking? Is that not what we desire? Is that not what we want? Well, if it is not sola scriptura, scriptura, but is instead the doctrines and commandments of men, it is humanism, no matter what form that it takes. The scripture must be our final authority. But instead of seeking to establish the wisdom of the Lord in all things that pertain to life and godliness, what we are seeing here are many who are basing their application on the culture. They are worried about the polarization of the church into a left and right paradigm where the church is splintered into a blue and red distinction that is reflective of the political parties. How about we become more concerned about the truth rather than how we will be perceived in this post-modern and post-Christian culture? Our concern should be for the truth because it is only the truth that will set us free. When it comes to the truth of God's word, I do not care how I am perceived in this culture. I am perfectly happy being ostracized in this society and identified with the Reformed and Conservative churches in Africa or China or in any other part of the world over being identified with this illiterate, weak, worldly, emergent church in America. This is not about trying to be identified with those who share my skin tone or those who have red, white, and blue cultural heritage. It is about the truth of God's word uniting all peoples under Christ the King. I'm going to preach the word of God and tell both political parties to subject themselves to Christ and his word. And I signed the statement because I believe that is the attitude, that is the statement that is found within the document. I don't give a flip about the political parties. The only reason why I am a Republican is because it is the only platform I can currently affirm. But make no mistake, there are many problems in the Republican Party, and if there is not revival and reformation in our land, the day is coming that I will not be able to be identified with either party. Where the Democrats are wrong, we should speak to the issue. Where the Republicans are wrong, we should speak to the issue. So how dare Keller accuse those who have written and signed this statement as endorsing and promoting a specific political party when it does nothing of the sort? There is not one statement that you can find in this document that identifies itself with the Republican Party. The real problem is that the statement is seeking to establish truth based upon the Bible and not cultural trends. You see, this issue is really very simple. 
If you are biblical, biblically orthodox, then sign it. And if you do not believe this statement to be biblical, then show us where it is wrong so that we might correct our thinking and our ways. We do not want to be in error. But enough of this, I cannot sign it because there are real victims of injustice. I mean, seriously? I thought I read somewhere in the statement of social justice in the gospel that we affirm that since he, talking about God, is holy, righteous, and just, God requires those who bear his image to live justly in the world. This includes showing appropriate respect to every person and giving to each one what he or she is due. We affirm that societies must establish laws to correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did read that. Yeah, I, I read it in chapter 3. That's titled Justice. You see, we need to stop making excuses by saying that we cannot sign it because we live in a polarized political climate. Because I also thought I read somewhere in the statement that we deny that true justice can be culturally defined or that standards of justice that are merely socially constructed can be imposed with the same authority as those that are derived from Scripture. We further deny that Christians can live justly in the world under any principles other than the biblical standard of righteousness. Relativism, socially constructed standards of truth or morality, and notions of virtue and vice that are constantly in flux cannot result in authentic justice. Oh yeah, I did read that also in the statement. It's in chapter 3 again. You see, we need to stop saying that the acts of this statement is to perpetuate racism. Because, again, if my memory serves me correct, I read somewhere that we affirm that racism is a sin rooted in pride and malice, which must be condemned and renounced by all who would honor the image of God in all people. Such racial sin can subtly and overtly manifest itself as racial animosity or racial vainglory. Such sinful prejudice or partiality falls short of God's revealed will and violates the royal law of love. We affirm that virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contain laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. Yep. That's chapter 14, titled Racism. You see, there's no shortage of excuses. As a matter of fact, there have been many who say that they cannot sign it, but agree with the content. Now, the reason why they say they cannot sign it has nothing to do with the truth of the words, but in their view with the acts of the words. In other words, the words of the content they say they agree with is offending those who do not want to acknowledge and receive the word of God as infallible, absolute, and final. So there is no, ex there's no shortage of excuses, but there is a shortage of biblical reasons why this statement should be rejected. Could it be that we live in a period of time 
where we have lost our courage and resolve to proclaim the truth of God's word regardless of the consequences? I believe this, that, that this may be more of the problem than any real issue in the statement. You see, we're not trying to marginalize anyone. Truth is not based upon what is fair in relation to our feelings. What this document is attempting to help accomplish is a biblical criteria for us to make application of God's truth in a postmodern society that is hell-bent on deconstructing anything associated with a biblical worldview. Truth is not relative. It is not based upon feelings, experiences, humanistic reason, humanistic consensus, or any other criteria outside of God and His Word. In the end of Keller's statements, we see the danger from this kind of thinking. He clearly says that if you are looking at the words of this statement, you are looking at it in the wrong way. And that we should not view it according to what it says, but in what it does. Well, what is it doing from their estimation? Well, quite frankly, what it is doing, it is causing many in this postmodern construct to think that we are not concerned about the poor, justice, and so on. Well, maybe the reason why they are saying this is that, and the reason why it is making them feel this way, is because we are not going along with their postmodern views on these issues. We believe the Bible has the answers and not the culture. Our cry is the words of the prophet Isaiah, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Thank you for listening to this edition of Standing Firm. We hope that you will join us again next time. And until then, may God bless and may God be gracious to us in sending regeneration, revival, and reformation. Thank you for listening to Standing Firm. Please consider helping us in this battle for Christendom as we assault the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can write to us at Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity, P.O. Box 1125, Mooresville, Indiana, 46158. That is Reformed Church of the Holy Trinity, P.O. Box 1125, Mooresville, Indiana, 46158 or you can visit us online at reformedholytrinity.org. That is reformedholytrinity.org. When the clouds are all a-gathering on every side around and you start to feel as if you are a magic bound Don't be bending and a-bowing like the barley in the wind Summon up the spirit of the warrior within Stand your ground, stand your ground Every time trouble comes around Don't you allow him to bring you down Stand your ground, stand your ground Every time trouble comes around Don't you allow him to bring you down 
But I love you as you are But I love you far too much to leave you as you are With fashioning resilience and deepening resolve So that when the day of testing comes you don't dissolve Stand your ground, stand your ground Every time trouble comes around Don't you allow it to bring it down Stand your ground, stand your ground Fought against the odds Stand your ground, stand your ground 